Hi, I'm Rena Grobe. And I'm Madhvi Romani. And this is Misinformed, the podcast for lazy but smart people. Every week we'll be discussing a different trend or topic so you can stay informed the easy way. So, Madhvi, what's the topic this week? So for a while now, I've been thinking about adoption. Misinformed follows this account called No White Saviors on Instagram, and they post a lot about basically white people going and adopting children from different African nations and just being really narcissistic about it, adopting them into families that are super racist and revealing a huge amount of abuse in this world of intercountry adoption. In fact, the Netherlands recently did an inquiry into intercountry adoptions and found just so much damning abuse that they actually froze intercountry adoptions. And the same kind of happens in Sweden. Sweden has one of the highest rates of intercountry adoptions. So this is a topic that is getting a little bit more attention nowadays. And with this attention, it's just revealing how much is wrong and all of the complexities of the system. And so I know this lovely person in Berlin, her name is Sunmi, and she is adopted herself. She was adopted when she was three years old from Korea, and she grew up in the south of Germany. And now her work is actually as a coach for adoptees so that they can process not only the original adoptee trauma, which is that they are separated from their birth mother and their birth parents, but also the fact that they are completely separated from their original culture and country. And so, yeah, she's sort of helping them explore their journeys and their trauma. So with that said... Here is my interview with Sunmi about her experience and the work that she does now. Enjoy. I'm here with Sunmi, who is a holistic adoptee coach. She is the founder of Nomaru, which is a platform and community space on and offline for adoptees to feel heard, be seen, and explore their journeys. I have so many questions. I would love to start by asking you about your own journey as a transcultural adoptee. Yeah, hi. Thank you so much for having me here on the podcast. And uh, yeah, my journey has been filled with a lot of lows and highs. And it's been quite a journey of self-discovery and exploring my story and yeah I was three and a half years old when I was adopted into a German family I grew up in the south of Germany pretty white neighborhood not exposed to my own culture and I believe that caused a lot of the need to search for cultural belonging but also family belonging and belonging in general so belonging has been the overarching search and topic in my journey so far and now just realizing okay I need to find belonging within myself first before I can find it elsewhere and so I believe I've arrived at a place now to 
find more peace in all of this <laughs> and learn how to work with the, the wounds and the shadow in my life and accept it. So that's been a big portion of that in search of identity and belonging. Do you want to tell us a little bit, because I've seen on your Instagram, there were some super fascinating facts that I didn't know about, about why there are so many adoptees from Korea and a little bit about this mm -hmm. particular country and history? Yeah, so the whole adoptee wave started after the Korean War. So that was 51 to 53. So there's several reasons that there's so many Korean adoptees. And one is certainly poverty out of Korean War. And I mean, Korea was devastated in that time. So a lot of children uh, on the streets being impoverished. So those were officially named as orphans. But not every, actually every child was an orphan. So some still had one part of a family, but nobody could identify the family. So they were mm -hmm. just walking on the streets and impoverished. So they got adopted. And the other reason is that there is a stigma on mixed race children. So there were, after the Korean War, there were a lot of mixed race children amongst Korean women and American soldiers. And the blood lineage is is a big stigma that the meaning that the it, it actually ties into the mixed race idea. Like a clear blood lineage means that it's fully it's a hundred percent Korean. So whatever else is mixed in is it has a stigma and, and is not wanted basically. And the other reason is there's a stigma which is still today that now that Korea is such a thriving, economically thriving country and is the stigma on unwed mothers and then yeah so the story from hold which became one of the biggest uh, international adoption agencies is that a couple named hold they started to adopt american couple from korea in 53 and they got a lot of media coverage from that and then so that led into like a whole wave of adoption and institutionalized saying adoption basically and now there's like 200,000 Korean adoptees actually adopted into formerly western countries western European countries to Scandinavian countries and the US does that still apply today because you were adopted after after yeah. after the war like yeah. many decades mm -hmm. afterwards mm -hmm. so do you know anything about yeah your situation or like what was relevant then so in the 80s the reasons probably was mostly around single moms or unwed mothers that yeah gave away their their children to adoption and yeah. now are there still so many korean children being adopted not no not anymore there was actually also an official apology to the to the korean children that were adopted because there's so many in a whole flood. I mean, now it's 200,000 worldwide. Uh, so there was an official governmental apology to those children that were given away. And also because of more scandals coming out of, of abuse in, in the adoptive families that caused also transcultural adoptions or intercountry adoptions to, to increase. To decrease, sorry. <laughs> to decrease. <laughs> That's one of the reasons Rena and I really got interested in this topic, mm. because we follow this um, Instagram account, No White Saviors. And obviously there's this big 
trend of rich white people from the global south, basically, going into countries, especially like African nations, and adopting children from one culture and one country, and then raising them in another culture and country. And there are lots of scandals here. So it does attract like evangelical Christians and narcissists and all of this kind of stuff. And, you know, abuse situations and these children are they have no voice and power so there's an overwhelming kind of potential for abuse yeah what's your take on on people going and adopting from different cultures and countries so i have certainly changed my view on that just coming out of the fog which is a commonly known term amongst the adoptive community that basically means awakening to the complexity of adoption and that means the the traumatic experiences and the suppressed emotions around that but also the systemic yeah issues in the adoption system being a very corrupt <laughs> system where and i personally know so many adoptees that have falsified documents or just came with shady uh, circumstances into into their new families Plus that they didn't have a good life in their new families. So that certainly changed my view on adoption because the narrative that adoption is pure love and is about saving the children <laughs> and is about a win-win for both sides, that is not true. It can be true, but there are so many more layers to adoption and there is a lot of complexity and nuance to that. and. That depends, of course, on the very personal individual stories that every adoptee experiences. But in general, what I really want to raise more awareness on is to look at the best child's interest, which is not really happening. So it's a lot about the perspective of the adoptive parents wanting to save the child, but that might be a very selfish reason and a very egocentric reason of Maybe, yeah, showing off with like, hey, look, I adopted a child. I'm so anti-racist because I adopted a child from a different culture. <laughs> but when you look closer, it's like, are you really providing the needed support for that child to grow up with ethnic mirrors? Are you emotionally available for the, the search for cultural belonging identity for your child? Yeah, so often the needed support is is not provided. And I'm not I'm I'm not talking about I don't want to generalize, so I'm I'm all about looking at the individual case and this individual story. And for for me, I mean in my in my personal experience, my parents certainly they loved me and they provide a lot of support for me. At the same time, yes, they could have done things a bit more aware and being more conscious about <laughs> cultural identity implications and all of that however i know so many adoptees that are really struggling with uh, internalized racism or yeah just not feeling like they are a trophy to their to their parents or they're they are put so many expectations to fulfill somehow a gap in their parents life and i think that is when it becomes problematic mm. and the act itself like wanting to It often comes with good intentions to believe that, oh, I want to provide a better life for the child. But that also assumes that it will be a better life and that 
the child cannot have a good life in its own culture and country. And mm. I think that is the white saviorism view here coming in, like believing that the child could not have a good life in its own culture and country. Just to add on that, mm. it's 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 also like how can we it's how can we provide a good life for the child and look at the the source of the problem and not in the way that we can look at these impoverished countries that adoptive children often come from and work on that they economically can thrive better, that they can provide for their children so they don't need to be adopted in the first place. Or how can we place children in their own countries into other families first before adopting into a different country and culture? Why do you think people have the impulse or... It might not even be the impulse, it might be a practical thing. So why do you think people adopt from other countries rather than their own country? Like I imagine that Germany, Scandinavia does have people who need to be adopted in their own population. Why do you think there is why do you think people adopt from other cultures and countries? Yeah. There could be several reasons. One can be time, because it is much or used to be much faster to adopt a child from a different culture than going through a longer process and waiting for an inner country adopted child. So that one is timing, that process is faster. And the other reason could be that the adoptive parents want to simply show off that, hey, look at me, I'm so anti-racist i i adopt a, a child from a different culture and it's the saviorism mentality of like i want to help but it's a help syndrome mm. to wanting to to help a child from a different culture one of the reasons you know we have this win-win narrative is because of celebrities like angelina jolie and madonna adopting a lot of children from different cultures angelina jolie has a specific of approach which is to hire a nanny from that particular culture that the child is from to help them relate to their country do you want to talk about what you think about this well i find this whole situation with uh, in the case of angelina or brangelina very bizarre like <laughs> and the question is is that in the best interest of the child because as a celebrity with such busy life and adopting free children and i believe they have three more biological uh, mm -hmm. children so mm -hmm. six total and so it's a question do all of the children and specifically the adoptive children get the support that they need and yes it might be helpful to hire a nanny mm -hmm. <laughs> from the, the culture of the the child however is that enough mm -hmm. i would want to question that Because yes, it is important to have a, a ethnic mirror that mirrors the child. But yeah, again, I would question if the nanny is enough there uh, as the primary caregiver. And then I wonder if they could really establish a strong parenthood or father, mother, father relationship to the children with such a busy life. And just seeing how they expose their children, like mm. in the media and the press coverage, That to me is just very bizarre. And that just shows to me that they hold their children somewhat as trophies into the cameras 
and I would really question if that is in the best interest of the child. Plus, it's again this the loss of control, which is a big struggle for many adoptees, including myself. This feeling of I did not have a choice in my narrative, in my story. So I was mm. chosen in a way to be adopted, but nobody ever asked the child, do you want this life? And that lack of control can be very difficult and unsettling mm. but then learning and for me it was a lot about oh I always wanted to be independent because of that because independency when I'm independent that creates for me the feeling of oh I'm safe in this world I create my own choice and agency and I don't want to have this happen to me again that someone chooses over my life mm. and just learning how to deal with that and then also let go of control so that's a that's a fine line also like okay there is the healthy part of feeling independent in that and having control over your life and now knowing okay I can choose how how I live my life and I don't feel like I'm not in, in control but this is also a point to arrive at yeah I find if I had to have a choice I would not choose to be famous or the child you know to be brought into this extravagant totally rich cut off you know, it's so far away from normalcy, the Angelina Jolie situation or the Madonna situation, that like even children who are not adopted into the situation, they struggle with having parents like this and uh, growing up in a situation like this. I was reading recently about Steve Jobs and Steve Jobs was adopted. And when he was at school, as children do, they said, oh, so to him, like, you know, so your parents didn't want you. And he went home and he said to his parents, like, oh, is it true? My my parents didn't want you? And they said to him, no, 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 it wasn't that your parents didn't want you. It's that we chose you because you were special. We specifically decided to have you. And there's a question mark over whether this narrative of being special and chosen and all of this actually formed his outlook and his idea that he was actually special like it gave him this kind of confidence in this narrative and this story yeah and that's know. yeah that's very interesting because there's different perspectives also on that like yeah. some other adoptee might say oh i'm chosen no i was chosen out of a catalog so i was just <laughs> i was just like bought. like bought like a product in a shop yeah and then some other adoptee might feel very special and chosen and and so I think it's very individual how mm. and nuanced how people think uh, mm. or adoptees think about that. And I believe also, you know, it's like, and I often wonder, yeah, would how would my life be different if I had grown up in Korea? Would have been a better life? I feel very thankful for my life now, just knowing about the patriarchy in Korea and knowing about uh, horrendous <laughs> work culture and everything. So I'm glad I'm here. However, it's like, what is the measure of a fulfilled life? How do we measure the quality of a life? If we look at through the lens of like, okay, success in terms of yeah, making money or through this very capitalist lens of like achievement and success. But then it, happiness doesn't lie there. I mean, we know that. So it's also about what, what is a happy life. And that is also very individual. So yeah, it's hard to pinpoint what life would have been better for the child. So that is why it's difficult to answer the question of mm. like, 
is adoption good or bad? Mm-hmm. There is, it's a lot about the how and how do parents adopt? How can the, the pre and the post adoption services be improved so mm-hmm. that it's in the interest of the child? How can that be more monitored so we don't see so many scandals and make sure that the children are placed into healthy and safe families? I mean, these are all measures that need to be undertaken. Mm. So, is it improving? It's improving, yes, but it's still not enough. I, ch- I mean, I had a friend contacting me, and and he said in this whole process of adoption, they had to go for many workshops and like meetings and psychological scan and and things. However, they never got to talk to another adoptee that shared their experience, and that to me is a big, big alarm signal. Like they're trying to adopt somebody. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Is a big alarm signal that the adoptive experience needs to be be shared a lot more, and and now mm. there's a lot more sharing their stories, yeah. and representation, representation, right? yeah. and voicing their experiences, mm. and so that is really good. But um, so we're in a good way, but yeah, there's definitely more. We need more voices because you're right. Like it's just been a win-win narrative so far, which has totally not listen to the voices of the adoptees you always see it from the parents point of view and it's uh yeah, yeah. something severely lacking from representation for the the children and yeah and i definitely advocate for these individual very personal experience and it's not about blaming or pointing fingers in the first place but it's about okay how can we make this better in the best interest of the child and how can everyone contribute to that Do you find working with adoptees that there is a pressure on them to be kind of grateful for being adopted and grateful for their parents? And yeah, what's that like? Yeah, so that is, I think, definitely in my own experience and also so many adoptees I've met and worked with, this seems to be a very universal (laughs) feeling and pressure thinking uh, needing to be grateful for for their new life and the privilege that comes with their adoption. And while that may be true or is true, and I also feel thankful for the opportunities I have had in my life, it doesn't paint the full picture. And there are so many more layers to that. And my parents never put the pressure on me that I felt like I need to be grateful or that they would talk to me in a way that is like, oh, you have a better life now, you should be thankful for that or any of that. Though I've heard of other adoptees that they heard this directly from their parents. Yes. Hmm. Are there any other sort of similarities or emotions or feelings or traumas that transcultural adoptees have that you've noticed through your work? Obviously, every single journey is different. Yeah, there's a few very common (laughs) struggles that adoptees have. And yes, to the extent that's very much dependent on the individual person, on how resilient one is based on their nature and then what kind of upbringing and family surrounding they had shapes how, how we deal with certain things. However, there is definitely a lot of complex emotions going on and Often these emotions are suppressed. I mean, in my own uh, story, I allowed myself 
only later in adulthood to really work through these emotions. So there's a lot of the fear around abandonment and that can really affect the way we have relationships like attachment struggles like anxious or disorganized or avoidant (laughs) then there is a lot of grief which is often not processed so grieving over the loss of the birth culture and the birth parents or family that ties in with also suppressing that grief because you're supposed to feel grateful in a new family so you don't allow this grief to actually take up space and yeah so there's a lot of sadness and melancholy around that loss and there can also be a lot of anger and resentment just learning about um, the corruption in the, in the system or learning of that that one story is not true or might be fabricated in my case i don't I have access to my files, but there's only an address where I was found and that's it. And it could also just be uh, false information. And I know that it could be fabricated. Often children were given away for adoption under very uh, questionable circumstances. And I know many who found their birth parents or one side of the biological parent. And they had, like, for example... The child has been given to a foster care temporarily with the intent to bring the child back home. And then in one case, like the father goes back and the child was gone. It was given away for adoption. That's so <laughs> so these stories seem, there's many of these stories or also baby farms where it's like a very intended. What's a baby farm? A baby farm is <laughs> a system to, to basically produce babies but with by raping women by taking them away from their mothers in a quite shady and corrupt way and this still and this this still still happens yeah wow Yeah, yeah and that's really i mean those stories have been also very shocking to hear for me and but it this happens (laughs) That's awful. Mm-hmm. But yeah, when I just maybe link back to the struggles that adoptees face, I think the biggest one is also just realizing the trauma of adoption itself and dealing with that because that is often unseen and not talked about. And it's a very, yeah, the mother wound, so to say, like the separation of the birth mother is so primal and is something so unspoken in in this whole uh, narrative of adoption and that is a big big wound that needs to be processed and the biggest struggle of that all is that to not feel seen or validated in that adoption experience and the complexity of of it and and the struggles in it because so often we hear oh yeah you a you're supposed to be grateful or b you're you're so lucky that you have a good new life so that creates just this picture that adoption is only win-win, is only a positive story, but it's not. So you talked about you were adopted at three years old, and then you grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood and setting. And then when you were 18, you started to process everything that had presumably been sort of 
suppressed or that you hadn't given yourself permission to deal with until then. What happened when you were 18? Was there an event or a moment or...? Well, I certainly remember the moment looking into the mirror and all of a sudden, yeah, awakening to my Koreanness. And what led to that moment, I mean, obviously I looked in the, the mirror many times before, but it was a big moment of questioning, okay, what is next in life? I had just finished my A-levels and broken up with a boyfriend. My two best girlfriends went off to... Australia and so there was a big moment of feeling just sort of lost in life and having to figure things out now on my own and with that came a big question of like okay who am I where am I from what's next for me in life and all these questions around identity and defining who I am and who I want to be so and which country do you identify now culturally with and I know since then you went back to Korea so how do you relate to Korea now and what does it mean to you? So Korean I have a ambiguous relationship I would say <laughs> it's like a book you know with an open end and open beginning and sometimes it sits on a shelf and I don't look into it and sometimes I'm really curious about it and I read some passages and there is a lot of curiosity for that country and culture and I went there to explore and to see how much am I relating to their culture and then realizing oh I feel very German in Korea much more German than I feel in Germany <laughs> and at the same time I also feel alienated there I just feel like I don't belong there so yeah, it, it's a relationship that ebbs and flows <laughs> and I identify, parts of me identify Korean because of that's my blood, that's my ancestry and I feel a really strong, very ancestral blood connection to that culture and at the same time I also, parts of me feel German. And then there's a lot that feels in between and beyond. So I like the idea of a more transcultural identity and a more fluid understanding of cultural identity. Mm. Because for me, it, it's been a, a long journey of like thinking I, because of external biases or expectations, needing to fit in a certain box into the Korean box or German box, but now realizing, okay, I don't need to fit anywhere and I can claim that in-between space and make it my own and who defines at the end what is a real Korean what is a real German and just freeing myself from that label of cultural identity and just yeah embrace a more fluid understanding of that and what are the benefits of that for you coming to that sort of space it's allowing myself to also to see myself as more as a cultural identity like what shapes who I am is not just the color of my skin. It's not just what I eat or consume. It's a lot about the value system, actually, that I live by, the passions that I have, and they go beyond culture. And they are influenced by so many cultures at the same time. I mean, consume music and art and food from all over the world. So that is all influences my interests. 
yeah, so there is definitely the beauty of of finding a lot of freedom in in that and how to how to define myself. Mm. Once I remove the expectations from outside, yeah, and just to be clear and about who am I as a person, as a human, I'm soon me and and I don't want to be limited to my cultural identity. Mm. There's a freedom to that for sure. That I guess if you don't belong to one or the other, you have to define for yourself from inside. And that's a unique position. I think a lot of people don't have that. Yeah, I mean, it, it takes also work and commitment and time for self-healing, self-discovery, self-inquiry <laughs> to get to that point for sure. And it has taken me a long time to get that, to that point <laughs> because the truth lies within and the and the essence of, of every individual person. But I believe everyone can, can find that because we all carry that inherently within us mm. yeah you're right it requires a lot of work for anyone to get there and then of course when you have this trauma of adoption as well to deal with that and then get there is is really something and now you're helping other people do that as your work you've got numaru what does numaru stand for what does it mean Numaru is a korean name for a space in a traditional Korean house and Hanok house and it's a community space where yeah people eat where social gatherings take place and where you can open the windows to the outside world so I yeah I think it's very representative of what Nomaru is about it's about community it's about honest conversations it's about coming together and gather and talk enjoy food but Numaru is also about healing and holistic healing in the sense of finding emotional clarity and courage and balance in, in our journeys. You do do a lot of work with food. It's always been a kind of interest for you, I think. Do you want to talk a bit about food and identity and what it means to you and how you use it? Yeah, my passion for food is related to so many things. And I think it's so beautiful how it all relates to like just when we think about where does an ingredient come from, how much history of the, the place and then how we grow that a vegetable and what kind of soil and and then how can we prepare that with in, a, in different ways, different recipes. Or when we think about how the idea of a stuffed in Germany it's maultaschen but in Korea it's mandu gyoza dumpling pierogi like so every culture has different takes on how they interpret ingredients or a recipe so there's so much history in that in spice roots but then food is also about coming together and it's a language that everybody understands so to eating together and the most communal place that in houses the dinner table and it's <laughs> been it's been a passion of mine like personally and a way to explore my like my Korean culture in a way to learn how to make kimchi and learn how to cook just different dishes and foods and so that that was a connection to me to my to my origin country for sure the dinner table is a place really where you feel a sense of belonging and community and I guess that's also what you're trying to do with Namaru is make the space for community and belonging for adoptees, which I guess hasn't really 
sort of existed before or does it exist? How many spaces of this kind are there? Well, there are actually many uh, adoptee spaces and they are all operating differently. There's many groups online that one can access and exchange. And what I try to do with Monomaro to keep the space very small and intimate and very personal. So the, for example, the community circles are run, there's no more than six to eight adoptees coming together in an online space. Because for me, it's really important. Everyone feels safe and feels seen. So that also means to be heard and to voice their experiences and to share. And often being in bigger groups, there's a lot of yeah hesitancy to, to open up and share. So yeah, that's for me the, the most important part that someone feels safe enough to share. And some are also more listenings, and that's also okay. But I do encourage uh, engagement and connection, also through like creative practices and a lot of mindfulness practices. Because for me, what I also realized in my healing journey, it's a lot about the body-mind connection, and that we can't really talk our way out of things. <laughs> what kind of things do you do, for example? So meditation, breath work, somatic body work, and then creative writing exercises, a lot of sharing and deep, deep conversations, but also things like going out to photograph and find, yeah, everyone can find their own unique creative expression of their emotions, because often we cannot access our emotions because we're not even aware what we're feeling. Totally. But, but we can express through drawing or through imagery or describing something based on the shape or color and that can give a lot of information about what feelings are actually there but also following our sensations in the body like emotions they sit in certain body parts is it more in your chest or heart or lower back or yeah so that's the fascinating part of like really helping adoptees to to find that inner connection to basically attuning to themselves mm -hmm. because this is also where the wisdom lies where where the healing lies at the end i mean i need a support to understand that and so now i want to share that that knowledge and with with other adoptees and how is the work for you wow it's really it's my true calling <laughs> it's been something that i've always looked for like finding the purpose in my work and aligning my personal interests with my professional work and so that's very beautiful now coming together <laughs> lovely nice that's really beautiful and what are your sort of plans for the next year or so with Namaru? yeah to offer more in-person experiences and retreats and I'm looking at some places here in uh, South Europe but also in the States east coast and maybe also in california so that's right now all in the making but yeah it's about the beauty of coming together and really feeling the energy in a room together online works beautifully so i was really surprised how well that actually works but i yeah did a retreat last year in berlin and just that was a, just a different level of um, exchange and connection so I'm very mm -hmm. excited about um, some retreats this year thank you so much for talking to me about this fascinating 
topic and your own personal journey and the wonderful work you're doing. At the end of each episode, we do a thing, which is three things to make you a better person. Do you have any advice for anyone out there, whether they're an adoptee, whether they're thinking about adopting, whether they have friends who are adoptees, but three things from your personal experience that people can do to be a better person this week and onwards, of course. <laughs> I think the first one is starts with to be curious and to be really open and to, to listen and learn to other people's personal experiences. The second one would be to be compassionate. And that starts with self-compassion, actually, because the more we can forgive ourselves, accept ourselves, and feel for ourselves, we can also feel and be empathetic with others. And the third one, to be okay with discomfort. Yeah, speak from not a place about your own ego, but to be okay to to learn from each other and to question your own beliefs and form new beliefs. And that is often not very comfortable, but it's something also very uh, insightful and liberating. Thank you very much for sharing your story and your work with us and your wisdom. You can find Sunmi on Instagram. She's at numaru, which is spelled N-U-M-A-R-U dot true belonging or she also has a website and it's namaru.space we will link to everything on our newsletter which you can sign up to at misinformed.substack and we'll also link to all of Sunmi's links in our Instagram and you can follow us misinformed.podcast on Instagram for that and that's all from us this week until next week goodbye if you like this show please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts you can also help us by supporting us on patreon for as little as four euro a month visit patreon.com slash misinformed for links to all our sources and for our personal tips on what to watch and read subscribe to our weekly newsletter at misinformed.substack.com You can follow us on Instagram at the underscore miss underscore informed or email us your feedback, requests, or just to say hi misinformed.podcast at gmail.com We would love to hear from you.